1: Welcome to the Talent Development Think Tank podcast. I am your host, Andy Storch, and I'm excited that you are joining me today for another great episode and interview to help you up your game and improve your capabilities in the world of talent development. That is what we are all about. It's been our mission since day one back in 2018 and been going strong ever since then over five years of podcasts over 400 episodes and I keep connecting with more great guests and people as a result of this podcast and today is no exception today we're talking about inclusive leadership and specifically reimagining inclusion in the corporate workplace and my guest today is quite a star really a LinkedIn top voice, and one you've probably seen out there quite a bit if you are on LinkedIn. Her name is Mita Malik. Mita gives innovative ideas a voice and serves customers and communities with purpose. She has had an extensive career as a marketer in the beauty and consumer product goods space, being a fierce advocate of including and representing black and brown communities. Her passion for inclusive storytelling led her to become a chief diversity officer to build end-to-end inclusion ecosystems across big and small organizations. Malik has brought her talent and expertise to companies like Carta, Unilever, Pfizer, Avon, Johnson & Johnson, and more. She's a sought-after speaker and coach to startup founders, executives, and public CEOs. And she's also the co-host of the popular podcast, Brown Table Talk, part of the LinkedIn Podcast Network. Work. On that podcast, Mita and her co-host D. Marshall share stories and tips on how to help women of color win at work and advice for allies on how they can show up. Mita is a LinkedIn top voice, a contributor for Harvard Business Review, Adweek, Entrepreneur, and Fast Company, among others. And she's been featured in the New York Times and many other publications and now on this podcast as well. Mita is also the author of the new book, Reimagine Inclusion, debunking 13 myths to transform your workplace, in which she is saying all the quiet parts out loud of what holds us back from making meaningful progress in this work. And I'm excited to dig into that with her today. Finally, Mita has a BA from Barnard College and Columbia University and an MBA from Duke University's Fuqua School of Business. She lives in New Jersey with her husband and two children. And in this conversation, today, we really dive into this topic of inclusion and inclusive leadership and what are some of the myths out there that we hear in the workplace about DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and what are some ways that we can improve, we can build more diverse and inclusive, inclusive cultures. And I really think that Mita has a lot of experience in this area and is really addressing some of those myths, some of those things that we hear And I think a lot of these things are going to resonate with you, especially if you've been doing that work in the DEI DEI space or you come from an underrepresented group, underrepresented background, or, you know, you might be in a position like me where you're still learning about these things and you want to learn from experts like Mita. This is just a really great conversation for everybody And I'm looking forward to you hearing it. I want to also mention that uh, Mita has already agreed to be a guest in our Talent Development Think Tank membership community. She'll be joining us as a guest speaker sometime later in the fall of 2023. So if you enjoyed this conversation and you're not already a member, come check out all the information on our website, which is talentdevelopmentthinktank.com. All right, without any further ado, here is my interview with Mita Malik on Reimagining Inclusion. All right. I'm joined now by Mita Malik, who is a corporate change maker and author of the new book "Reimagine Inclusion: Debunking 13 Myths to Transform Your Workplace." Mita, welcome to the show.
2: Andy, thank you for having me. I'm so excited.
1: Yeah, I am honored to have you here. We were just talking before. I think we've kind of been following each other on LinkedIn for some time. You have built such a huge, I think, brand and following on LinkedIn over 100,000 followers now, and I think that's because of the content you put out, not just the content you put out, but who you are. I, you know, I, like I said, before we started talking, I just, I feel like I know a bit about who you are and what you stand for. And I'm, and I'm assuming you are authentically, you know, who you are and what you talk about. And I know you are very passionate about making the world a better place as I am. So I'm excited yes. to have you here.
2: Yes. Thank you. Very kind words. I try to be, I hope <laughs> when people meet me, they feel like what I post externally is how I am.
1: Yeah. Likewise. I think yes. I have a, a long thought as I've been building a brand and putting stuff out on, you know, in social media and other places for the last few years, that my biggest fear is being found out to be a fraud or a hypocrite. Like I want to live in alignment with the things that I say. Absolutely.
2: Or right? well, you fall from the pedestal, right? Yeah. Years ago, I worked with Viola Davis, incredible Viola Davis to turn around a business I was leading and she did not fall from the pedestal. That's an amazing moment. When you meet someone you've admired
1: Mm. Meet
2: them in person. And you're like, wow, this is who this person is. And that's yeah.
1: pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. I've heard the advice. Don't meet your heroes. Cause like, oh. I'm disappointed. I'm like, <laughs> I don't know. Like if you really follow somebody, you get to know, them, but you never know. But the first question I wanted to ask you is related to that, that I do see you a lot on LinkedIn and in other places. I'm curious what inspired you to start sharing so much and building this brand and being very public about your, your beliefs and opinions.
2: I have been passionate about writing my entire life. My mother reminded me the other day, ever since I could pick up a crayon. So I've always wanted to write. And I was always writing quietly and privately. I'm not an overnight success. If I think about it, Andy, it was likely my dad's death. I lost him very suddenly back in uh, 2017. And that was a really pivotal moment in my life. We all go through grief and loss, but I think when you lose someone suddenly and it's completely unexpected, you start to think of your life differently. What if I wasn't here tomorrow? What if this was my last day? What if? What am I holding on to all of these things for? And I do believe with power becomes, comes responsibility and there's a privilege. And yeah. so I'm at a certain point in my life, in my career, if I can share all of the things that I'm thinking about or things that have happened to me. I hope that inspires somebody to show up for someone else that they aren't showing up for or to show up for themselves. And I do think that probably that grief was a way for me, writing was a way for me to process the grief.
1: Mm. Did you have or need to get past any fear with regards to, you know, putting content out there, stuff out there? And the reason I ask is because I, I had to get past my own, but I also have several people in my inner network that I talk to who are like, oh, I want to build a brand or thought leadership. And I'm just afraid of, you know, what people are mm-hmm. going to think, or they continue to hesitate and not put things out there.
2: I'm a marketer. As you know, I've worked on many, many brands and that's the beauty of brands. You're not supposed to be all things to all people. I'm not everyone's cup of tea and that's okay. Mm-hmm. And so I don't spend a lot of my time looking at the negative comments or naysayers. Now here's the difference. I think as a country in our communities, and our homes, we've lost the ability to disagree with each other. Mm. And so, I really appreciate when people disagree with kindness and respect because I will learn a different perspective, yeah. and so that's different for me. But if you're going to show up and just put mean comments and be like, wah, 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 "I'm like, well, why don't you try to do this?" <laughs> like, right. This is exactly. hard. Right. And so there might be posts that I see that I'm like, oh, I don't know if I agree with that." Right. I don't need to go in and drop a negative comment. Yeah. I might put insightful, or I might really respectfully put my point of view. We can have a discussion. Mm-hmm. I think if I let that hold me back. I'll never post again.
0: Yeah. That's good or I'll thing.
2: never show up in social media again. Like I'll right. be so scared. I but always there's think always of somebody who doesn't like what you're saying. And sometimes I think it's more about them than you. Like mm-hmm. I say, hurt people hurt people. I've heard yeah. that. I didn't did not coin that, but I've, right, right. No, I've heard, heard it in it. many places, but it's, it's like, possible. it is right. If someone's lashing out at you that you don't know. You're like, why are they lashing out at me like this? Like this is yeah. like, So it's like something to do more with them. And if I can pivot that and actually be empathetic to say, okay, this person's hurting. That's yeah. why I'm showing up with such negativity on my feed. Yeah. And then the final thing is I block people too. Like mm. if you're going to show up with hate speech or really negative, nasty things, like I just don't have the space and energy for that. So I will right. remove you from my
1: community. I'm with you. It's the way to go. Yeah, I don't know if you follow Gary V. He talks a lot oh, about. Oh
2: my god, I used him. to be Gary V.'s client ten years ago. I know Gary V. He probably oh, isn't really? anymore. But Gary V. I follow a lot of what he says in
1: yeah social
2: big. and also about how to build a brand,
1: Great. Right? Sure. He's, yeah, good. I'm a big fan of his and Claude, of course. He works. Oh here. my
2: god, Claude's a good friend. Yes. Yes. Claude's
1: yeah. Yeah. Friend. She's spoken World's at our fun. at my conference, been on this podcast multiple times. So Claude's amazing, amazing as well. And I was just thinking of Gary because he he talks about that that if people are leaving negative stuff, it he, he knows it's more about what's going on with them than Absolutely. him. And he'll even reach out and be like, Hey, can I help you with anything? Like, it's just amazing. All about empathy, yeah. but it, using that as a transition, I want to come over to being inclusive and being an inclusive leader, something a lot of people are working on that you're speaking about in this, you know, the wider DEI range, but especially this idea of inclusion. And I'm curious, like, what is your idea or concept of inclusive leadership. A lot of people are talking about that these days. Like, what does that mean to you?
2: Well, I think the biggest job of leaders is to create more leaders. That's the biggest job, right? That's the legacy you leave behind. So how do you coach mentor, help people get to where they need to go. And if I think about inclusive leadership, I think about what is inclusion. Like, let's talk about what is inclusion. Mm. And for me, inclusion is I work for you, Andy. I feel valued, seen, recognized. I belong. My contributions matter, and that is the biggest retention tool we have right now. Because if I feel that way working for you, somebody else can offer me twenty thousand dollars more, and the likelihood, as I'm not going to do it, it's too much of a risk. Maybe a hundred thousand, joking, but like, yeah. you know. But it's like it's that like, wow, I found that. Yeah. And as I talk about in my new book that's coming up, Reimagine Inclusion: Debunking 13 Myths to Transform Your Workplace, I talk about the fact that I've been chasing inclusion my whole life. Like I feel mm-hmm. that way from the schoolyard to corporate America, I never felt like I could find a place where I belonged. And part of that was my cultural upbringing, but part of that was also, the world of work was not designed for someone who looked like me, Mm. (laughs) right? So I was trying to fit into spaces I didn't belong. So back to the point of inclusion, like that's our number one job. And if you can make me feel valued at work, you're not Mm. just unlocking the potential of your company, you're unlocking my potential, it's pretty amazing.
1: Yeah. Can you talk about that for a moment? You you said the world of work is not designed for people who look like me. I've, I've certainly had many of these conversations. I know i come from a different place, you know, maybe the, where the world of work was designed, even though I feel often like an outsider as well. What do you mean by that?
2: I'm the proud daughter of Indian immigrant parents. And my parents gave me a lot of gifts that corporate America doesn't really value. One of them is this idea of humility, hmm. <laughs> right? work really hard, stay behind the scenes. My dad used to say, keep your head down, work hard, stay out of trouble and you'll be recognized. That doesn't work in corporate America. I kept waiting for the fairy godmother to come and like, boop, promote me at my cubicle. No, it doesn't work that way. This other idea of just, I can outwork anyone, Andy, maybe you and I can have a competition, but I have a really hard work ethic, but I wasn't working smart. I was working really hard. Mm. I also, a quiet leader, I'm more introverted not something that I have seen corporate America celebrate during my time. I think that's changing a lot. I also think just in terms of who I am when I show up in on screen or in conference yeah. rooms, my brownness shows up first. Mm. A woman shows up first. Like There are things about my dimensions of diversity that are visible. There are other things that I, maybe I'm not comfortable revealing, we don't know each other yet, but there are things okay. you can see. And so people will make judgments based on that. I'm also five, one and a half, and the half is important to me. And so, but also like being around, like being smaller, right? Yeah. And to build presence yeah. in person. I had a CEO I worked for once who was six, seven, and he would just like, you know. We would just be walking, but it'd be like he was racing and he didn't mean to race. He just right, just his power. stride. And yeah. I just was like, hey, can you can, we, can you slow down? Right. Like, I'm on heels and I can't keep up with you. Yeah. Or imagine if you have a bunch of tall senior men having conversations standing up and I literally cannot. I mean, it's just really
1: right. funny. It's another stratosphere. You. Can-
2: yeah. And then all of a sudden we're in this world of work where. I feel like even being on Zoom with you now, it, it just levels the playing field.
0: Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I feel can't like tell I'm how tall you are.
2: You're able to own my space. We're both engaged. That's right. And so I think a lot of things have, have changed for the better. And I think there's a lot more that needs to be done.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that. And I hope that we get to know each other better, and you can share some of those other things. And I, and it's funny you mentioned the half is important. I'm I'm five eleven and a half.
2: Oh. And I've been chasing
1: that six feet, you know, of my whole life, but just not getting there. My dad is six you feet. Can be the half.
2: <laughs> I can be five two. You can be five eleven. Yeah, if
1: you give me your half, right? <laughs> we can trade it. I could know,
2: give you the half. You become six.
1: Right, exactly. Yeah. You know, in the end, it doesn't <laughs> yes. it, it doesn't matter that much. Right. But these are things that we, we tend to focus on sometimes, but I appreciate you said about your, your, your background and upbringing and the way the world of work is designed. And certainly there's many unconscious biases and things that I'm sure you've been dealing with for a long time. And there was actually a quote I pulled out of your, your bio. I don't remember where I saw it. I wanted to ask you about, you said, I've been over mentored and under sponsored for most of my career. What does that mean?
2: Yes. I get a lot of flack when I say that, but I think people are coming around to it. It's one of the myths in my book. And I talk about the fact that I've been over-mentored and under-sponsored in my career. And that doesn't mean that I don't have incredible, wonderful mentors. Mm-hmm. You want to be mentors for each other after this, after getting sure. to it. was like lots of mentors I've had. But the difference between any mentorship and sponsorship is a sponsor is someone who is typically... Two levels above you in an organization. They are somebody who has a large PL, they have a large team budget, they are in the room when the doors are closed and decisions are being made about your career. And I was so naive when I first started in corporate America. One of my career sponsors, Gail Tipper, told me, do you know who's talking about you and your career when the doors are closed? I'm like, doors are closed and people are talking. I didn't know that this is how things went. And so they are also somebody who's going to use their political and social capital to help advance your career. Now, this doesn't happen. It's not like a friendship bracelet where it's like, or best friend necklace, will you be my sponsor? That's not how it works, but... You know, in my role, I have worked to match people, you know, rising star with the sponsor, but also I always ask people to think about what they're working on and who else in the organization would benefit from that work. And so I always say, like, spent too much time like this, bent over, just looking, typing, not really looking up to see what else was going around me at work. And so no matter what you're working on, try to think about how you could build a relationship with somebody else who would value knowing that work and sort of creating co-ownership of it, right? Yeah. And then you'll see that that person becomes invested in it and you build a relationship based on the work. And then if you were my sponsor, you likely would, knowing the merit of my work, would yeah. say my name when I'm not in the room and mm-hmm. help advocate for that promotion.
1: Yeah, I learned about that years ago and have been you know, talking about that since. You know, I've had a couple of chapters in my book about networking and one about building your personal brand. Because yes. like you said, a lot of people go to work, assuming that if I work hard, I'll be rewarded for it. Right. Just like your parents taught you. Yeah. And it's not the case, right? It, 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 your personal brand, your reputation is also a factor and your brand is about what people are saying about you when you're not in the room. Yes. And guess what, when you go out for a job and then the interviewers, the hiring manager, are deliberating, they're talking about you and you're not in the room and they're not just saying, oh, does she have the right skills? They're saying, do I want to work with this person? Absolutely. Is this someone I want to spend time with? And a lot of that's going to come down to your brand and reputation and what you portray. I think I obviously don't have the direct experience that it becomes even more important for people from underrepresented groups to be thinking about what is that brand that I'm portraying. And, and I couldn't say that directly. I don't have the experience. I've interviewed a lot of other people to make sure that that, you know, yeah. it's in line with what I think is important that I want people to be thinking about. And I'm glad you're, you're talking about it as well.
2: Absolutely. And for leaders listening It's human nature to be drawn to people who look like us, act like Mm -hmm. us, think like us, who've had similar life experiences, psychology. And there's nothing wrong with that, except let's try to interrupt the bias. Like you can have that thought in your head, but then start to think about, you know, always ask the question, whose career are you fighting for other than your own? You should be fighting for your career, but who else are you fighting for other than your own? And if they're all individuals who are from the same community that you identify with, think about how you might be able to diversify that and think about sponsoring other individuals as well.
1: Yeah. Well, speaking of that, myth one in your book is about supporting Black Lives Matter. And we know, obviously, going back to May 2020, when the death of George Floyd happened and the, the rise of the social justice movement started, there was a wide range in how companies responded, right, and how people responded. Certainly, there were companies that just put a black square in their social media and said, oh, yeah, we support Black Lives Matter, but maybe didn't do anything else lot of other companies that, you know, started listening tours and and trying to create more empathy and, and find out what's going on. And many people who said, well, I'm not part of the problem. I support Black Lives Matter. I have black friends or I'm not, you know, racist or I don't do anything actively against mm-hmm. black people. So I'm not part of the problem. What do you say about that? Like what, what's the myth there and how can people improve or companies improve?
2: So the myth I talk about is, of course, I support Black Lives Matter. Why are you asking if I have any Black friends? And every chapter of the book opens with a pretty powerful story. And then I debunk the myth and leave tips and tools on how leaders can show up to do better and be better. So, Andy, fundamentally, I am sort of just puzzled about how we're doing diversity, equity, inclusion in our workplaces. I feel like we're doing it backwards in backwards many ways. So we're chasing inclusion at our conference room tables, at our boardroom tables. It actually starts at our kitchen room tables. It starts in our neighborhood and communities. And so one of the questions you should be asking if I work for you, let's say you have a diverse team. You are working on diversifying your workforce. The question should be whether me, Mita, is equipped to lead that team. That's the real question. Because the job of an inclusive leader, the journey, is to think about life experiences that aren't your own and to have empathy and understanding for them. And so I'll do a quick exercise with you and the listeners. And if you're listening, you can close your eyes or just just sort of think about some of the people you see when I ask these questions. Where do you live? Who are your neighbors? Where do you go grocery shopping if you go in person? And who's the cashier? Where do you get your hair cut? What restaurants and bars are you frequenting on the weekends? Who are you spending weekends with? Think about the last barbecue, wedding, funeral, big celebration you went to, just kind of observe who's there, right? As you're thinking through this. And then the last question I'll ask is, when you have a big life decision, something you're celebrating, something you're struggling with, who are the five people you're likely to call or text who are not part of your family? And so the the, the hard truth that we have to think about is if those all five people look like us, act like us and think like us, Many of us are still self-segregating in this country, and the research shows that two-thirds of white Americans are still self-segregating, similar numbers for Black Americans. So the question is, if I'm not building meaningful relationships with individuals from other communities outside of work, how do you expect me to show up as a more inclusive leader at work? Because if I'm the only Indian person you know, or the only relationship or interaction you've had with an Indian person, let's say, is on film or TV. You start to build stereotypes, right? Mm-hmm. And so you bring those with you to work. And so my big argument is here a lot of this starts outside of work. It starts in our communities.
1: Yeah, that's powerful just to think about those things. And who are we spending time with? Who are we consulting? Who are we involving in decisions? And it's it's not mad, it's not bad you know, that you got to where you are, right? It's not about feeling guilty about Absolutely. the past, it's thinking about how can I diversify more? How can I expose myself to different types of people and cultures and uh, embrace more diversity in my life and reflecting on you know, not only who are you speaking with, but who are you elevating as well, right? We talked about sponsorship.
0: Absolutely.
1: Yes. I- I've talked about this on the podcast, but, you know, in the face of the social justice movement, I took a look at this podcast. And at that point, I think we had done 200 something episodes. And I realized I had only had I don't remember the exact number. It was only three black guests, something like that. And I thought that that's not good enough, right? If I'm saying, oh, I'm an ally, but I'm not actually supporting, going out of my way to support. So we made sure I had a lot more black voices on this podcast since then. We have had other Indian women on the podcast and I'm actually interviewing another one later today. So I'm, I'm always looking to try to create more diversity here, as well as with the events we run, but I was trying to get better as well, because I want to show people what it, it can Absolutely. be like. And it's not... It's not easy, right? It's something you have to be intentional with.
2: It's not easy. And I so appreciate you being vulnerable and thank you for that. And I hope people are taking notes. It's not easy to say that you made that mistake or you've been thinking about it, but the important part is you've thought about it and you're trying to show up to do better and be better and that you're also asking for help. And I think that's amazing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, this is about life is about learning and growth, right? We never have it all figured out. We're always trying to get better. Your second myth is about being an inclusive leader. And we talked a little bit about what that means earlier, and you talked about people feeling like they're being heard, but you said there's a myth in just saying, well, I let everybody speak, so I'm an inclusive leader.
2: Because one of the hardest things about being a leader is actually hearing things you don't agree with, and then actually being able to really listen to that. Just because you let someone speak doesn't mean their contribution matters, doesn't mean you actually care what they have to say. and also. One of the things I talk about in this myth is the difference of leadership styles and how we use our voices. I am much more of an introverted leader. I love the power of the word. If you said to me, I could be on a TED Talk, or I could get a book deal, I'd probably pick the book deal.
1: (laughs) Hmm. But no, I do
2: TED Talk too. Hopefully, they go together. It's just like I just like I would rather be writing. Of course, I use my voice. Of course, I enjoy that too. But thinking as a leader about why are we pressuring everyone to always speak up? Aren't there ways to do things async? Mm -hmm. Aren't there ways for people to contribute their thoughts over email or Slack? Particularly as a leader, I think about this a lot too. It's like sending out pre-reads or an agenda because not everybody is just as comfortable showing up on the fly to contribute. And when they're not, they're often punished for it you don't seem as engaged. You don't speak up. I don't know what your ideas are. Well, the environment's not set up for me to do yeah. that. And so I think that's really important to think about how we're leading, particularly in a hybrid workforce. And when we say, oh, we're an inclusive leader, what does that really mean? What our teams really say that to us? The other thing, Andy, I talk about a lot, which it just kind of baffles me. Is there's so many moments in my career, I didn't understand why I couldn't present my own work. Goes back to the inclusion piece, particularly in mm-hmm. large companies or where, when bosses are insecure, right? Yeah. It's like, yeah. oh, Andy did the deck, but Andy sent it to me and I'll send it to the CEO. Right. Why? Mm-hmm. right. And so just think about that, like giving people credit and making them feel like they're getting credit for their valuable work is yeah. part of being an I inclusion had, leader.
1: I had a manager that did that. And I don't know if you've ever read Multipliers by Liz Weissman.
2: No, uh, I've heard of it. I have not. Okay. Read it.
1: So in the book, she talks about accidental, you know, how leaders multiply or diminish their people. And there's concept of accidental diminishers where you're doing things with you think in the best interest of someone, but it's actually diminishing them. One of them is the protector where you're doing things under the guise of I'm protecting you, but really you're hurting you. And so I had a manager who I would do all the work and then he'd say, well, I'll go present this in the meeting because there's a lot of stuff going on in there. And I don't want you going in there because, you, you know, you might get hurt kind of thing. And I'm like, no, I want to be in the room, right? Yes. And, and really it was diminishing me when he felt like he was protecting me. And a lot of managers don't realize that the effect they're having when they're just saying, give it to me and then I'll I'll pass Absolutely. it on.
2: And his job is to prepare you for those tough conversations. How about, Andy, this is going to be tough. And here are the five things that are likely to mm-hmm. come up. The other thing I challenge people to do is check your calendars for tomorrow and see who's invited to what meetings and why and who's not. And I do think in a world that we work in now, it's not like you got to fly to London to be in the meeting.
0: That's
2: right. It's not like you got to sit on the radiator. It's like, you know, there's enough room for everybody. I'm not arguing. See, one of the things that there's a lot of research about is like, I think it's something like if you have more than seven people in a meeting, there's a number, seven, eight. Yeah. The the productivity starts to.
0: Sure.
2: One of the things I argue is, corporate gatherings and meetings can be an important tool for inclusion. We're just not doing it correctly. Meetings Mm -hmm. are broken. And so this idea of, go back to that example, Andy, why couldn't you have just gone and presented what you did? You have to stay for the whole meeting. Yeah, But it's interesting, right? It's like, we're just like, oh, meetings are broken. So we're not going to invite anybody like right. And I'm like, hey, I, this has happened to me. I'm like, that was my project. And I wasn't even in the meeting. Like yeah. you're talking about my project. Right. In the and then Later, someone, you know, send me some notes. And I'm like, this is wild.
1: Yeah. Another thing that I, I like to do, I'm sure you appreciate as an introvert, but as a longtime facilitator and someone who's always trying to build inclusive communities and we run a membership community and people have commented about being very inclusive is look for the people who are not speaking up and yes. try to get them involved to share their voice, right? Because they probably have many great things to say and just don't feel comfortable, right? Speaking up in front of the the bosses or the people who are louder than them or that sort of thing. We want to make sure that everybody feels like they're included and appreciated.
2: Absolutely. I think that an invitation matters. And also the balance of not putting people on the spot, right? I had a professor in business school who had always cold call. It was horrendous. <laughs> so it's like the balance of like, you know, Mita, do you have anything to contribute? And if not, we'll move on. No worries. You know, so I think it's the, also the ability to sort of read people's body language and how comfortable or not they are in that
1: particular. Yeah. Let's shift from, from inclusion to diversity. One of your myths, myth four, it says I'm all for diverse talent as long as they are good, right? Like I'm all about diversity, but I need to make sure that we have good Oof. talent here.
2: I've heard that so many times in my career. And the more I start talking about the book, the more people are like, oh, yeah, I've heard that too. You know, throughout the, throughout Reimagine Inclusion, I try to get people to self-reflect and try to think of the opposite. So let me ask you, would we ever say, I'm all for non-diverse talent, as long as they're good?
1: No, of course not.
2: I'm all for non-diverse talent. So where does that come from? Part of it comes from, again not having access to individuals with different lived experiences. And we start to stereotype, and then we start to connect that to performance. So one example might be, let's say I'm on your C-suite, you're the CEO, and you have appointed me to lead a troubled part of the business. I'm the first woman of color on the C-suite, and the business is in trouble. And it's been six months, and for all the reasons, it didn't work out for the company or me, and I leave. Will you be more or less reluctant to hire another woman of color for that role if I was the first one, right? Let's actually now shift to another scenario, very similar, a white man who ends up taking on your C-suite a role, leading a troubled part of the business. And for all the reasons, don't need to get it doesn't work out for the company or him. He moves on. Will you be less likely or more likely or reluctant to hire a white man after him? And I do feel like, particularly for me, as someone who's been the lonely only in many situations, and I might have been the first, there's a lot of pressure when you're the first because you know, if you fail, people will say, Oh, I don't know if I'm going to hide. You know, there's that bias that sets in. If I'm the only woman of color you've ever worked with in an executive position. So I ask people to really think about that, to hold sort of do the opposite. Like, how are we setting standards for different people? Mm. Why?
1: Related to that, I'm very curious about myth seven, which says we need more people of color in leadership. Let's launch a ment- mentorship program.
2: And so that is back to sponsorship, right? I know you've worked with many organizations as well in your time. And it's like, I feel like whenever there's a problem, we need to fix the attrition problem. We have too many women leaving. We need to recognize people, but we have no money. Right. Anytime it's like, let's launch a mentorship program. Right. Right. Let's get the employee resource groups to do it even better. Right. And so then it's like, but mentorship is not going to be what advances your career. It's sponsorship. And I go back to that, you know, Andy conversation we're having about my career and being over mentored and under sponsored. I never actually had someone early in my career sit me down to say, here are the five or six experiences you need to have if you want to be a VP of marketing. Like mm. that's what a sponsor does for you. And they also know the lay of the land of the organization. Right. Yeah. And so if you think about the, you know, enormous number of mentorship programs across the country today, if mentorship was really working, wouldn't we see a difference in our C-suites and our boardrooms? And I know there's, there's been progress. There's more to be had. So the sure. question is, is like, is, is mentorship failing us in terms of, advancing.
1: Diverse, elevating people of color. Yeah. Because I think there's, there's, there's a couple different goals of mentorship, right? There's the, yes. there's sort of the broad goal of like help people achieve more in their careers. And I think mentorship is working when it's done right. People are put, you know, placed yes. with the right people. I talk all the time about the importance, you know, when you're networking or you're looking to move up to do informational interviews, find people who yes. are doing the job that you want to do right. And talk to them and they'll answer questions. And that's great. And you learn some things, but that's very different. I've learned of course, from sponsorship, which is someone in a position of influencer power who is in the room where it happens per se, who is mentioning your name and saying, hey, let's give Mita a chance. Like, let's interview her for this role. Let's put her in this leadership program. And that's a lot harder to facilitate. It's a lot harder to do.
2: It is. And it it is very, it's thinking very concretely, like we think Mita can be a VP of marketing here. So she is going to have to go run the Canadian business. She's going to have to come back and do this assignment and that assignment. Like, what does curating her career look like? Right Here are the experiences she needs to get there. And sometimes it's never too late. But at some point in your career, if you haven't had all those experiences, you're not at the same level as the peer who started because they have had those conversations or someone has supported them in a different way. So they're more likely to advance than you are potentially.
1: I love that. I mean, I think it's something that companies really need to be thinking about and individuals need to be thinking about on both sides, right? Who can you help elevate and sponsor? Who can you build a relationship with? Who could better sponsor you? It's
2: like you said, it's very tied to talent planning and succession planning, right? There are those things are, it's all very tied to how talent.
1: Yeah. And it requires activity and and maybe even courage from different people on different sides. Mm -hmm. You know, I've committed to this, you know, elevating more people of color and different backgrounds, you know, when I look at events and things like that, but it took a while to get there. I want to ask about myth eight. I didn't write down exactly what it was about supporting women in the workplace. There's a lot of myths and a lot of talk about yes. that. Yes,
2: Of course we support women. We just extended maternity leave. Of course uh, yes. we, support women. we just extended maternity leave. So a number of things that I unpack, one of which is that creating an inclusive culture means you're in creating, excuse me, creating an inclusive culture for women means creating an inclusive culture for mothers. Not all women want to become mothers or will be caregivers. Also, this idea that just doing a policy, check the box, you've, you've supported new mothers. There is so much research that shows the fatherhood premium and the motherhood penalty is still in play. And that's long after I had my two kids who are now 10 and 8. You know, For my husband, every child we've had together, he is more committed more ambitious and attracts more money he will earn more and for every child i've had i'm a disheveled mess and that is out. that is shown in the statistics of how women are penalized in terms of their earning potential as mothers Hmm. the other thing i talk about which not many more you'll see people talking about in the marketplace is gendered ageism I feel like I probably, Andy was once that right age, that one year at work, like you're either too young or you're too old Uh for women. And so how that shows up in terms of, oh, Hmm. I don't know if Mita would have the professional maturity Hmm. to help in front of the client. She seems young. She sounds young. She dresses young. What? Or Mita's had over 30 years of experience at this company. I don't know if she'd have the pace to keep up here. Hmm. I don't know if she has the energy. Right, what? So it's like all those. Think about that—the coded kind of subtle language—and so I think gendered ageism is something we don't talk enough about, and particularly post the pandemic, research showing women over fifty-five the difficulty of trying to enter back into the workforce once Mm. you lost your job because of the real bias. Yeah, which I'm not saying men don't. I'm sure, you know, men who are listening, you could certainly, we'd love to hear from you, but
1: yeah, there's a lot of men that deal with age, ageism, of course. And I I think, you know, going back to the comments about what the impact of having children, I tend to think there are some biological and, and psychological factors in there as well, but it doesn't change the fact that from a workplace perspective, we need to continue to give people equal opportunities and, you know, not make assumptions just because of someone's age, which. Probably better done in the United States than many other cultures, but it's still there, especially for women.
2: I let me share this story with you. When I had come back from having my daughter, she was nine months. I had taken some additional time off, and I was up for a really big promotion. And a number of career sponsors had come to me and said, "This is your job. Like, Mm -hmm. it's go and tell your manager you're going to apply for it." And in many large corporations, the manager needs to give approval. I'll never forget Andy going and talking to the former boss about it, and he said to me. You have two young kids at home. You're not going to travel for that job. That's not your mm-hmm. job. You should be really focused on your kids right now yeah. and not let me apply for that That's job. That's not his
1: decision to make.
2: Exactly. Yeah. So my, I wish I had had the courage to say, who gave you permission to slow down my career? Right. Who gave you permission to slow down my career? So you cannot make assumptions, as you're saying, right. about what right. someone's ecosystem is. Right. And unfortunately, we have a lot of stereotypes of what we believe women and men should be doing whether yeah. it's home and at work and whether, however, we've been raised, we bring that with us yeah. to the workplace, right? And so it's 100%. about interrupting that bias. Absolutely.
1: 100%. Well, I always tell leaders, lead with curiosity first, right? Ask the question, you know, Hey, uh, this is a concern for me. Are you sure you want to go for this? It's very different from, I don't think you should, you shouldn't Absolutely. for your life, right? A, a strange, and then the age thing reminds me of a very funny Obviously, I haven't you know dealt with any challenges here in the United States, but I was once facilitating a workshop in Japan when I was probably about 33 years old or 34 years old, and the client was a a slightly old an older woman in the back. She said, "Andy, you are so knowledgeable, but you are so young because obviously in Japan they have a, a strong emphasis on age and wisdom and and respecting yeah. your elders and you know wanting gray hair in front of the room." It was a funny moment for me that I'll yeah. I'll never forget you know, she was like, I'm so surprised. (laughs) The last one I want to ask you about is myth 13, which is about working from home. Something I've been doing for many years. Obviously there's many people in different places on this and many people who will say, well, working from home is great. It's more inclusive. What do you say about that?
2: It absolutely is. I will tell you, like we talked about this idea of do I have executive presence or gravitas or all this coded language I've been given in my career? All of a sudden, when I'm here on a square with you, there's a level of intimacy. We're talking to each other. We're building a relationship. Also, I'm like owning my space and I yeah. feel very comfortable yeah. versus how I might be perceived in person. Now, I'm not saying that I don't want to work with people in person. Of course I do. But I do think there's an unlock to really thinking about the future of work, which is now in hybrid workforce. But just because you say you're working from home doesn't mean check, it's inclusive. I think the Mm -hmm. things that we have to be concerned about is that if you have, let's say, as I talk about in this myth, a number of individuals from historically marginalized communities who want to work from home and be on screen for all the reasons that you might expect, individuals with disabilities, Black colleagues who feel like the level of microaggressions is much less working from home, which is part of research that I include in the book. I could go on and on. But what happens to everyone else who wants to go in the office? And what does that mean in terms of recreating a two-tiered system? And what does it mean in terms of proximity bias? And if you see me more often, but you see my coworker less, and we're both making impact when it comes to performance review time, is your bias that you've spent more time with me in person that you're going to give me a higher rating? And I do think we just all sort of fell into this, and I don't think companies have really thought about what does it mean from a technology perspective? What does it mean from collaboration and ways of working? And that's why I think everyone's like, let's just go back five days a week. And I'm like, well, why don't we actually think about how we could actually work effectively?
1: Right. What's our objective and and, and what do we want to experience and feel? Yeah. I, I think it's going to be very interesting. There's a lot of companies going in different directions. You know, Absolutely. I work with a lot of organizations like you do. I see plenty that have gone back to everybody needs to be back in the office. Plenty that have said we're, we've gone fully remote and then a lot in between, right. That are still trying to figure it out two days a week, three days a week, hybrid, you choose whatever. I think there'll be case studies on this. You and I both have MBAs, right. All those case studies will yes. be case studies on this in 20 years. on like the whole, like out, you know, backlash or whatever, you know, the, What came from the pandemic and how companies responded?
2: Listen, I want to see the Zoom business case. Zoom, who is uh, asking their employees to go back to the office, just like, wow, like they they were sort of the default platform as well as Microsoft Teams during the global pandemic. And you're like, wow, like sort of wait and see. I think a lot of things will come out
1: of this. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see what happens with that business and just yeah you know, where where things go. Nita, this has been fantastic. There's so much more we could talk about. I'm really looking forward to reading your book, Reimagine Inclusion, Debunking 13 Myths to Transform Your Workplace. Where can people go to find out more about you and the work you're doing?
2: Uh, feel free to follow me on LinkedIn and you can pre-order the book on Amazon right now.
1: Excellent. All right. Well, I look forward to getting that. Excited to talk with you more. We've got our bonus Q&A conversation coming up, but thank you again for coming on. Really appreciate you and look forward to talking more soon.
2: Thank you so much.
1: All right. Take care. All right. That will do it for my interview with Mita Malik on her new book, Reimagine Inclusion, Debunking 13 Myths to Transform Your Workplace. You can find more information about that book on Amazon, on uh, Mita's website, and of course, by following her on LinkedIn. Mita is someone that I have been following for quite some time on LinkedIn, someone that I've always wanted to have a conversation with. And I was really excited to get that opportunity today, and it did not disappoint. She really has a lot of great experience and wisdom in this area of diversity, equity, inclusion, building more inclusive cultures. And I hope you got value from that conversation. I know I did, and I'm looking forward to digging into her book as I get my hands on it soon. So thanks again for listening. appreciate you. And as I mentioned at the top of the episode, Mita has already agreed to join as a guest speaker in the Talent Development Think Tank community where we can dig further into some of these myths and her background, ask questions and have a whole conversation around this idea of reimagining inclusion. That's going to happen sometime in the late fall of 2023. So if we're not there yet and you're listening, grab her book, And come join us in the membership community so that you can join that call as well as many of the other live calls that we're hosting every Wednesday at noon Eastern time with different guest speakers on different topics around talent development. All the information is on our website, talentdevelopmentthinktank.com, and just click on Community. That's talentdevelopmentthinktank.com, and click on Community. All right. Thank you again for listening. I appreciate you. I'm really rooting for you. I want you to succeed. Make sure you surround yourself with great people and you find some gratitude in your day today as I'm trying to do in every one of my days as well. Take care.